In this episode, we chat to Dr. Elizabeth Nixon, a lecturer in developmental psychology at Trinity College Dublin and a member of the Growing Up in Ireland study team. To find out more about how parenting styles and approaches can impact on a child's development and how you can negotiate family relationships as your child transitions from baby to toddler to older child to adolescent. We hear so much about parenting styles um, nowadays and helicopter parenting is obviously a very modern um, style of parenting because it didn't exist I don't think when I was growing up um, like what what is it and and what kind of impact does it have on a child is it a good way to parent but is there is there such a good thing or th- such a thing as a good or a bad way to parent I think there are better and worse ways to parent but I think <laughs> whenever we're thinking about parenting it's really important that we put it within a historical and within a cultural context. So when we were growing up, for example, you know, in many households in Ireland, you know, there was very traditional kind of gender roles. So the father was the breadwinner and he went out to work and he was often seen as the disciplinarian within the household. You know, the whole wait until your father gets home from work. (laughs) And then the the mothers were often the homemakers. Is your child restless this winter? If so, then try using a soothing Calpol vapour plug and nightlight an electrical plug-in device that emits lavender and chamomile vapours to soothe and comfort babies and children, helping to promote clear and easy breathing for up to eight hours. The Calpol Night Vapour Plug and Nightlight is suitable for children from three months. Calpol Vapour Plug and Nightlight is an electrical device and non-medicine. Always read the label. So a, a, a good proportion of mothers wouldn't have worked outside the home and I suppose they were there to provide care for the children, you know, when they came home from school. And now we know a lot of that is, uh, you know, a service that uh, parents have to buy in for their children because there are dual working parents. So I think a lot of about parenting nowadays has to be considered within that sort of context. And I think the guilt that parents feel for not being there for their children, uh, you know, during the working day is something that probably drives a lot of parents' behaviour. Um, so I think the helicopter parenting is possibly an attempt to kind of maybe ameliorate um, s- some of that guilt so that when they are there, they feel like they're fully kind of attending to what's going on. But I think the another thing that may be going on with that type of parenting is the idea that our children have to be kind of happy all of the time. And of course, that's not a realistic expectation for our way of being in the world. Most of us go around, you know, not ecstatic every day. We're just kind of getting along with the humdrum uh, and, and routines of life. But I think when parents see their children are upset, they, you know, their protective instinct kicks in and they want to compensate uh, for that. They want to make those negative kind of emotional experiences go away and they want to come in and kind of, you know, save their children from those what we know are unpleasant experiences and I suppose I'm not sure that in the long term that's a very good parenting strategy because really you know one of the key goals of parenting is to facilitate the child's transition into independence Um, and I suppose their ability to go from being you know you as a parent regulating their emotional experiences and helping them to understand those experiences to the child eventually being able to regulate and deal with their own emotional experiences. So if, if a child is upset about something and you're kind of constantly swooping in and trying to, you know, make everything go away or pretend it's not, you know, happening or distracting them with, you know, good things, um, then that's probably not really serving their emotional development as well as we as well as we could. So is validating their feelings and their emotions, is that 
a kind of a key way to build the resilience that you basically have to like identify and say like I understand that you feel you know x y or z and I'm here for you exactly and that's really hard and then that's enough yeah and I mean you know I, I think if you can um kind of you know reward them if you like rather than giving them you know screen time or food or whatever chocolate that you maybe reward them with kind of time with you or a, a, you know a, a cuddle or an extra story at bedtime or something mm. it'll help them so I mean children will derive their sense of safety and security from their attachment their primary attachment figure which is usually one of the parents and I suppose you know as you said it's helping them to identify their emotional experiences so very young children won't have the language or the words to describe what it is they're they're feeling and often for very young children it will manifest in terms of physiological symptoms so often it comes about in the tummy or they might get kind of you know blocked up for example and not be able to go to the toilet and sometimes this is you know this is their experience of kind of worry or anxiety but they don't have the language to describe that so one thing that parents can do from it from a young age and there's been some really interesting research that shows us that parents are better at using what we call mental state talk with their daughters than they are with their sons so by mental state talk I'm talking about words that relate to um, you know your um, cognitions or your thoughts so things like what are you what do you think or what is it you want you know uh, what are, what are your needs or you know using those types of words and then obviously emotion related words so asking them about their feeling what is it they're feeling and if they're this crying is girls yeah so so this is what we mean by mental state talk okay yeah. so it's really important that because as uh, we know that parent, our children learn language from listening to their parents mm-hmm. using language. So we want to use those words. And there's lots of books and so on that you can use. And that, that film, for example, Inside Out mm-hmm. was all about emotions and helping children to understand what different emotional experiences look like. And it's it's a really important part of kind of parenting is socializing children to understand their emotional experiences and what the research tells us is that mothers and um, are more likely to use these emotion related words when talking to their girls Mm. than they are with their boys and perhaps this goes back to kind of you know ideas around masculinity and kind of femininity that it's okay for girls maybe to express their feelings whereas boys should kind of you know keep them buttoned up and of course we know now that you know boys need to be really encouraged as much as girls to understand and be able to talk about and express their emotions yeah. um, in, in a safe in a safe way. One of Fionn's um, latest words is happy, which is like so cute. And obviously he responds to the song, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands and he does it all. Um, but be, because of that, this is only a recent thing. I kind of started asking him, are you happy? You know, so if he was smiling, I'd just say, are you happy? And he'd be like, happy. I don't know if he actually knows mm-hmm, what mm-hmm, it is. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, um, while he's all of these like new words are coming out, he's developing other uh, skills such as hitting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he's like, slice me across the face and thinks it's funny. And then I'm just like, no, don't do that. That makes me sad, yeah. you know. Um, and he laughs. But I mean, is that a good way of, of teaching emotion? You know, like, yeah, uh, yeah. am I doing the right thing? And 
yeah. in that way. So, I mean, you know, children learn first about their own mind mm-hmm. and then they learn about the minds of others. Yeah. And understanding that there's a distinction between the two is something that takes time to develop. You know, so um, so we, we do know that from about nine months of age, children understand that other people can have um, a perception or can see, can, you know, physically see the world from a different kind of point of view than they can. Um, That's very young, yeah, isn't it's it? Very young. So, young. so you'd be, you know, you'd be surprised, like, for example, if um, if you're interacting. So it's at, at around age nine months that we see the emergence of what we call triadic interaction. So if you're interacting with the baby and it's just you and the baby, you're looking, making eye contact, they're making eye contact back, you're smiling, they're smiling and so on. That's a dyadic interaction. Mm-hmm. When you introduce um, something else like an object, say a toy, for example, it becomes a triadic interaction. So it might be that the baby looks at the toy and looks at you mm-hmm. in a way to kind of, I want to, you to share your attention on this toy as well. It's this idea of joint attention. And that's them beginning to understand that, you know, you see things in a slightly different way from how they see things. Mm-hmm. And all of these skills are really, really important. The kind of building blocks, if you like, for the them coming to understand that if I behave in a particular way this will cause you know my mom or whoever or my little sister to feel if I hit my sister she will feel pain mm-hmm. do you know what I mean <laughs> so they're beginning to, to Isabel kind of definitely <laughs> knows that she yeah. is she has mastered that very yeah. well actually yeah so they're beginning to understand the you know the, those kind of things that the, the experiences of other people are different from their own experiences, which is yeah. quite a cognitive feat when we think about it, you know, yeah. and, and it does occur quite um, early on in development. So I think absolutely explaining to your child, you do not hit because, you know, it hurts me. And, you know, if, if I hit you, how would that make you feel? Mm-hmm. Now, maybe he's a little too small to kind of or young to, you know, quite get, get that message. Yeah. But I think if you keep reinforcing it over time, he will. But I think that's where speech comes in so handy and why parents are you know quite um uh you know they they like when their kids start talking and they want that to happen as early as possible I suppose and there's I know in my groups of people I'm in there's big kind of stress over speech delay or or how many words Mm -hmm, does mm -hmm. so-and-so have just because um well I think we that it's just easier to communicate when you can say it and like with Fionn knowing the word happy and maybe hopefully knowing what it means later he can you know express that to me and in the other way he can say when he's sad about something else I mean I don't he's only 20 something months Mm -hmm. so that's probably a long way coming but I do find already that it's just um you know the combination of that is easier for me to help him regulate his feelings mm-hmm. to be able when when we can kind of use words I use suppose. words yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I mean I, I guess the other thing to remember is that when a child is learning language they understand a lot more you know their ex- yeah. their receptive language which is their kind of understanding comes before their expressive language mm-hmm. so it's likely they understand a lot more of what you're saying than you might think mm-hmm. because you know just because they're not able to produce the kind of sounds for themselves and there's uh, you know huge benefits uh, for parents for children when parents you know practice I suppose language uh, with their with their child and again that requires us to be very present mm-hmm. when we're interacting with them and that we're not kind of being distracted by you know whatever else is, is kind of going on and 
and just labeling objects. If you notice the child looking at something, you know, giving, uh, you know, giving a word for that, that's how they come to understand, you know, what different words mean. I mean, when we think about learning a language, you know, um, as an adult or, you know, it's such a phenomenal achievement and the way in which children seem to learn language kind of automatically mm. is really a, it's really phenomenal um so it, it's a really special skill it's amazing to it witness, is amazing you yeah. know just seeing them coming out with things and wanting to learn and yeah we're in actually like the, not mimicking phase but the, basically if you say something it's now being said back to you which can be like hilarious but also slightly worrying because you're like oh no what else have you heard yeah um but even like so like stuff like like this is terrible but like sometimes you know when you're trying to make the dinner or you're like doing whatever and like you know Isabel's a toddler so she'll be kind of at you and like John and I my husband will be like we just give me a break just give me a break for two minutes or just just leave me alone for two minutes and now she started to say to us she'll be like mama just give me a break <laughs> like you're just she sounds like a teenager but you're also thinking like oh god does she understand what that means um but I suppose that's that is a, a good point of the kind of language and and because for for us actually Isabel was speaking very early she was she had great um verbal skills very early on which I actually think in a way was detrimental because we kind of thought that she had the emotional connection between the language and I don't think she did um so you'd be saying something to her and she would respond but then not actually do it. You know what I mean? So, so you kind of like, thought she was a bit more mature than yeah, she Yeah, you do. You kind of, you're lured into a full sense of maturity when they have more words to yeah. kind of tell you things. Um, but then as time's gone on, you know, we kind of mentioned this before, but I suppose labeling emotions or kind of talking through or kind of helping them identify emotions. Is that something that is kind of good for building their emotional intelligence? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, the more words we use with them and the, the greater the kind of breadth of language to which they are exposed, that's all going to kind of benefit um, not only their language development, but also their kind of cognitive development, the development of their thinking skills. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's usually important that we talk to our children, you know, to our very young children and that we respond, you know, when they're when they're vocalizing. So even very small babies will go through a babbling kind of yeah. stage of development. And usually it'll begin with um, the production of very basic kind of speech sounds. It's usually a vowel and a consonant. A favorite one is da, 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 mm-hmm. da. And of course, all the fathers are, oh, you know, it's her first word. Yeah. But I, they don't, they're not necessarily using the word da. It's just, you know, da, ba, pa, mm-hmm. those kind of speech sounds. And even responding, I mean, obviously they're kind of meaningless, but even responding to them, it's teaching the child about conversation mm-hmm. and turn taking so I say something you respond to me I respond back so that's a skill that's really important yeah. you know so even like on the surface it doesn't know but I can't have a conversation with her because she's only babbling but you can still again it's all about laying the kind of building blocks or the foundation stones for more kind of you know complicated language and like you're saying you know different words coming out or or if there's a lot of mimicking mm-hmm. then what you might do is kind of extend when she repeats something back to you you might extend it even further or kind of turn it on its head by asking her a question Mm -hmm. for example um, and and see how she responds okay that's Mm. what I'm going to do the next time (laughs) (laughs) well I mean the speech thing is one thing that parents like in our generation just obsess over but like also there's also um the crawling and into walking and um there's just so many things that I think our generation are 
again like they just put so much fixation into into doing certain developmental things at, diff- at specific times you know hitting those milestones um but i mean what what would you say to parents you know who are having this kind of stresses and anxieties over of that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a balance between sort of, you know, not becoming overly kind of concerned about, you know, the particular kind of day or week or even month at which your child achieves a particular milestone versus kind of, you know, being aware if there are maybe some like little flags that maybe development has gone a little awry or is, is slightly slower than we might um, sort of hope. And again, I think the GP or the public health nurses are really good um, kind of sources of and um, kind of support around this. And I suppose, you know, you can like broadly kind of compare your child to you know children of similar ages but you have to appreciate that children are on their own kind of individual trajectories or pathways and certain you know developments have to occur in order for them to be able to um, kind of achieve um, certain milestones so like physical growth is required in order for them to be able to for example sit up independently you have to have developed muscles in your trunk and back in order to be able to support the weight of your head for example and that can take time um, sort of to develop so I think it's kind of about broadly being aware of, of where those milestones are and I suppose trying not to kind of obsess about them yet also kind of you know um, you know trusting your gut if you think you know um, if the child is falling kind of a little bit or, or far behind in terms of, of where they should be at, at their mile in, in terms of their milestones. I think a big thing, especially over COVID, was so many people didn't have access to public health nurses and um, I suppose for the developmental milestones, if they weren't being hit or met, that they didn't really know. Um, do you think that there's going to be a long reaching impact on children that it's going to become even more apparent as time goes on? I think it's kind of too soon to know. Um you know, I think certain groups of children will maybe have benefited from, you know, having extended periods of time at home with their parents. Um, I think, you know, fathers in particular probably became much more um, involved in the day-to-day care of their child. So I think that could bring huge amounts of benefits. I mean, there's a lot of arguments, you know, this group suffered the most and this group suffered the most, you know, and I think, I mean, the point about human development is that we're all at different stages Uh, You know, we were all at different life stages when the COVID pandemic um, hit and arguably, for example, our teenagers, you know, who would have missed out on important rites of passage, like, you know, doing their leaving search or, you know, going to college, you know, arguably they were um, kind of worst, worst hit. I mean, I, I think over time there's this thing that we talk about in human development about the self writing tendency and that, you know, when things kind of go back to normal that often there's a, a period of recovery that kind of you know takes place and that maybe we catch up to where we would have been at mm-hmm. had that particular event not have happened I think it's too soon to tell really whether or not there are kind of long long-term effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on on you know the develop the development of the children of the country as a mm-hmm. whole I mean no doubt you know some groups would have been more disadvantaged and more vulnerable to negative effects than others but I think it's too soon to know for sure. So going back to parenting styles a little bit, um, you know, we can all have great intentions going into parenthood. I definitely thought I was going to be 
like a total hard ass with my kids and I was going to lay down the law and I was the boss and like even for things like you know no babies in the bed yeah. no mm-hmm. no kids in the bed um you know if they cry I'm just gonna let them cry it out like basically I thought I was gonna have little robots that I could just like you know whip and program shape. program <laughs> yeah basically and the reality is totally different but you know how I suppose how responsive do you have to be in your parenting like can you like even say if, if you have two kids like I do like can you parent both of them differently like does can that work or like or like should you tailor your parenting style to the child you have rather than kind of choosing a style and thinking that's like what you have to do and just trying to follow through with that mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, so when you think about what is parenting, you know, it, parenting is something that parents do to their children, okay? And when you, when you, when you kind of think about it, like that's a very kind of one-directional way of looking at it. So the parent behaves in a particular way, and this has this effect on the child. I mean, that's essentially the kind of you know getting to the nub of what parenting is and that's one way of thinking about parenting I think it's more useful to think about parenting in terms of a relationship Mm -hmm. between you and and your child and so if you kind of you know follow that way of thinking about it then it doesn't make sense that you know you would parent different children in the same way because you know the children are bringing different things to the equation so things like their their personality kind of characteristics whether they have any health or development needs even things like gender can really shape um you know the relationship that you have with with your child you may find that you have very similar kind of characteristics or traits or you may find that your child is actually more like you know their their father and so that might mean that you need to kind of adjust your behavior in order to accommodate uh, you know for those kind of differences and even you know by virtue of the fact that you know your youngest child has an older sibling but the older child has a younger sibling that's going to shape the dynamic as well so parenting really doesn't happen in a vacuum it's part it's one relationship typically within a network of lots of other relationships so it actually really makes no sense to kind of say okay this is the kind of parent I want to be and this is how I'm going to behave and you know it doesn't matter what the child is like in this situation so I suppose acknowledging the kind of individuality that the child brings to the equation is really important and what you'll find is that one strategy might work really well for one child but actually has no or has the opposite effect on the other child you know um so I think you have to be kind of flexible and um it kind of adapt things to the to the characteristics of the child and also acknowledging that the child like children change so much so what might work as a disciplinary strategy when they're three is not going to work when they're 12 or when they're 18 do you know what I mean so you you're constantly having to evolve I think as a parent and as your relationship grows, you have a rich kind of history of, of the relationship for you to kind of draw upon. And that's a really important source of kind of knowledge and power, I think, um, kind of for parents. And something that's sort of new again for our generation is that because so many parents, just say in, in, in a mother and father household, they work. So you're kind of these days you're forced to have a partnership with equal parenting rather than before and we were saying earlier that the mother did you know kind of most of the parenting and then the dad was come came in after work and at the weekends and when he wasn't you know golfing or doing DIY and uh, (laughs) then he was a disciplinarian so but now you know maybe maybe I'm wrong but and I I know that obviously there were households in 
um, you know, the past, even my, my parents, I think were very equal parents because they both worked as well and we had like a childminder which was kind of unusual back then mm-hmm. um but then I, I i think about my mother who was such, such a worrier so and when she was with us she'd be kind of like always worrying about us and i think that's kind of like helicoptering a bit yeah. and um so kind of an early form of it uh helicopter 1.0 yeah <laughs> the og helicopter yeah. <laughs> but now because you know there's such there's equality in the household more than there was there's more equality in parenting and then you you have to make your decisions and more equally and that makes it harder as well because it's hard navigating that with your part your partner yeah, you know like where yeah. you're kind of maybe you were brought up very differently yeah. or you think you have the same values but you don't you know like and even when it comes to discipline and stuff like it can be hard to kind of strike the balance between what and again like I thought I was going to be this really hard person I'm really soft so yeah, I've discovered I'm very soft yeah as well. so <laughs> then I can feel like you know and, and my husband is too let's be honest but you <laughs> so know <laughs> when what like you know like say John will be like that's it we're doing a timeout and I'm like but you know the timeouts don't work and then like Isabel is literally just watching the two of us <laughs> when, when you two are done like yeah. Yeah. that to me yeah. she's like so what are we doing are doing time out or giving a toy away what am I doing um, but yeah no it is it's it's really hard to like navigate that balance between you know yeah I mean the, 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 the couple relationship you know changes um, the dynamic changes when a, a new individual comes into the household like a child uh, there's no doubt about that so where you just had that dyadic relationship now there's a whole series of, of relationships you're working more within a system unfortunately the research tells us that even in dual working households mothers still do the lion's share of childcare and housework so even where both parents are I mean I obviously things have changed hugely from you know going back um, over the years but I still think uh, the burden of that um, kind of care in the home falls to women mm-hmm. uh, so I think there still is some work to go before like equality uh, is is achieved if equality is something that you know that we want that we want in our households and not everybody well, not everybody does as well but there's no doubt that the co-parenting relationship is a challenging kind of one uh you know to to negotiate and I, I think it's okay if people have kind of different um different styles but I suppose it's important to think about whether you share the same values in in your parenting because I think if if there's kind of a breakdown there then obviously co-parenting can become that bit that bit more challenging mm-hmm. Um, so I suppose then kind of when it comes to parenting as a like, you know, catch all phrase, what are the kind of big no no's? Like we've talked about this before, but is like consistency, consistency and structure. Are they the kind of cornerstones, I suppose, of parenting and security for children? Because I think one of the other things that I've learned from doing this podcast and speaking to different people is if your children don't feel secure and like obviously loved and whatever else, but secure and that there's consistency, it can be completely unsettling for them. And even a child who maybe, you know, would have been fine as a baby, whatever, can develop anxieties or, you know, kind of um, be very nervous in themselves if they don't have that kind of very solid structure at home. Mm. Yeah, I mean, some children can have very kind of inhibited and introverted types of personality, which can make them sort of vulnerable to kind of feelings of anxiety. But there's no doubt that, you know, the opportunity to develop a secure attachment with that primary caregiver is 
probably the kind of, you know, one of the most important, I suppose, uh, milestones or achievements, if you like, of the first couple of years um, of their life. And so with the secure attachment, what we see is that it begins to develop from around six months of age. Okay, so it's not something that kind of happens automatically. And sometimes, you know, uh, the word attachment is confused with the word bonding. Now, from the mother's point of view, she can start to bond with her child from, you know, the moment, you know, if she's carrying the child herself, obviously there's a bonding goes on for her there. She's getting to know, you know, the, the fetus as they kick at certain times of the day or when she eats certain foods or whatever. And, you know, she's beginning to visualize, you know, what the child looks like and, and, and so on. And then obviously as soon as the baby is born, parents will often experience this, the kind of rush of hormones and this overwhelming feeling of love and so on. And that's all really important sort of bonding. But that's distinct from what happens for the baby. So when babies are born, they are they often don't discriminate among different people, partly because they can't see very well, okay? So their sight is very blurred when they're born. Now they have developed a very good sense of smell and a good sense of hearing. So they will be able to recognize, for example, the smell of, of um, their mother and the sound of their mother's voice. So these kind of early cues uh, will help the uh, baby become familiar with the mother figure and because the mother is typically the one that feeds them even if she's not breastfeeding she'll often be the one that you know feeds them they will come to associate and kind of feeding and being held with the sound and the smell of their mother and so there's that kind of pairing there if you like of pleasure and the mother and that's really the the building block for the secure attachment so it is really only over over time that that um, as a result of those kind of interactions that we see the infant begin to develop their attachment relationship and what's a real sign of attachment is that what you often hear parents saying is, oh, you know, she used to be great. I could leave her with anybody and she wouldn't get upset. And now I can't leave her, you know, and the, and, and they perceive this as a regression in the child's development. But actually, I would say, well, that's actually a sign that they have developed that a secure attachment to you. So you're their kind of comfort blanket. They don't want to be separated from you. So the hallmark of the secure attachment is that the child seeks proximity, wants to be close to that person. So that's why you'll often see from about nine months of age, the emergence of these kind of negative emotional um, experiences in the baby. So separation anxiety is one of them. They don't want to be separated from you. And the other one is stranger anxiety. So where before they were maybe happy to be, you know, passed around or whatever, be held by anyone. They don't want that. They just want to be kind of with their attachment figure. And those negative experiences lessen then into the second year as their kind of attachment relationship is um, consolidated. So I think to go back to your question about what's really important in terms of parenting, in those kind of early months, it's it's about that development of that attachment. And what you... I mean, the, the most important thing that parents can do to support the development of that relationship is to be responsive to the child's cues. So by that, I mean, like I was saying, be present, be mindful when you're interacting with your baby. Sometimes, especially newborns, they, they don't have a lot of scope to interact in the day. They spend a lot of time asleep. So when they are awake and alert and making eye contact and beginning to smile, that's the time when you're kind of building uh, you know they're building their bond with you and then as they get older consistency as you mentioned uh, becomes so important so you have to follow through otherwise they 
they can kind of manipulate you, you know. So you have to be be sure to set um, uh, kind of use discipline strategies that are realistic for yourself that you can see through to the end because as soon as the consistency starts to break down then it no longer becomes an effective kind of discipline discipline strategy so you have to think about what behaviors am I reinforcing by kind of I don't know confiscating their phone today but not doing it tomorrow you know what are what message am I conveying to the child uh, by being inconsistent in the kind of you know rules that I'm trying to implement here. That was one of the big ones for us actually being consistent um, and like once you actually like you said like once you just actually start to do it you know over and over and like that they know it's the cause and effect I suppose that they mm-hmm. suddenly know okay if I do this again like mm-hmm. my teddy mm-hmm. is going away or whatever mm-hmm. like it just does it's it's nearly like I would say magical but you know it's great when you can start to see that it's having an effect now it's taken us probably six months of it Isabel didn't really take too kindly to Theo arriving Um and went through a hitting stage mm-hmm. and it was totally for attention. She'd literally look at you as she was doing it to him because mm-hmm. she just wanted to get your attention mm-hmm. um, and probably hurt him a little bit. Um, <laughs> and then we started taking her favorite teddy away every time she would do it. And like, it was the first few times you did it, you could tell she was just like, didn't really know what was going on. But now she knows that that's what's happened. So she just now like, so <laughs> instead she now tells us, she's like, I really want to hit him. And we're like, well, don't hit him because you know what will happen if you hit him. And she's like, okay. So like, it's that transition. Mm-hmm. But it's the thing because she knew, she started to kind of realize, oh, they mean business here. Yeah. Like if I do this again, I'm yeah. going to get the same kind of punishment. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, the, the worst thing you can do, um, as you know, is you, you say, if you do this and, you know, um, I'm going to take away your teddy. And then the st- child starts whining and moaning and just trying ma- basically making your life a misery. And you go, OK, look, you can have the teddy. Mm. What you've done there is you've actually reinforced that whining behavior. You know, so if you whine or moan, we will give you what you want. So that's a behavior like that these will alarm bells are ringing here. Increase. Oh no, it's, it's so hard when like that. Yeah, when you're just basically like I've talked about the pester power before. Yeah, when yeah. they just keep at you yeah. and at you and yeah, at they you, wear and you're you just, down. yeah, and you're yeah. just desperate for. And to stop. like you are tired as well, and you are like busy, and you want to do something else, and it's just again this like anything for an easy life. Yeah. But in the end, it's not. It's mm. you know, it's making things worse. Yeah, you're making a rod for your own back. But then you know, it's it's easy to give out this advice. I understand that parenting is such an emotional mm-hmm. you know w- you know just as we talk about children not being robots neither are the parents yeah. and you might have had yeah. a bad day at work <laughs> and you're just like I can't deal with this right now yeah. and you know your resources can be low at times as well so I, I appreciate that so if you can even strive for consistency like 80% of the time mm-hmm. you won't be doing too bad a job you know yeah. or ex- start explaining to your child you know like we're saying talking about emotions you know mummy's very tired today you know can you you know even though you're always supposed to be the one that's kind of in charge and in control of things Mm -hmm. because children you know that it can stress them out if they think you don't you know you're not on top of things you're Mm -hmm. losing it yeah yeah yeah, exactly yeah yeah it's a good good enough parenting as you were saying earlier that's That's, you know that's good enough yeah exactly (laughs) i like that i'm going to take that with me yeah um i suppose moving i suppose a little bit further away from babies and very young children kind of into adolescence you know I think anxiety and mental health issues are something that's kind of I wouldn't say it's a new phenomenon but definitely we've become better talking about it and recognizing it and even identifying it and children can identify it themselves which is amazing mm-hmm. Um, you know how can you kind of try and reduce 
that in adolescence? Or is that even possible? You know what I mean? Like, is there a way that we can kind of instill certain things in our children to help them navigate the really difficult emotional journey of transitioning from childhood into teenage years into adulthood? Because it's really hard. And I think it was really hard for us. It's not a new thing. It's been hard for teenagers since like the dawn of time. but is saying something like you can talk to me anytime actually going to work? Well, I think so. You know, so many things happen during the adolescent period. So obviously you have, you know, puberty, which actually begins quite a bit before the teenage years. So in fact, things like menstruation, which we kind of take as the kind of onset of puberty, let's say for girls, puberty has actually happened, you know, quite a bit of time before that because, uh, you know, we see that and we know that there is a lot of variation in terms of when, you know, puberty hits, but it's quite hard to kind of pin down exactly the onset of puberty. But we know that hormonal changes begin to occur from about nine years of age. So you might notice you're kind of, you know, nine year old girl just beginning to be that little bit kind of more uh, having more negative mood I suppose and we know that there's a lot of variation in mood across the day for adolescence and so as, but aside from all of those kind of biological changes uh, you know there are uh, there's obviously the transition then to secondary school and also these kind of social changes that occur and one of the most um, I suppose significant ones and ones of the ones that you know I think parents struggle a lot with is they feel that they're losing their child mm-hmm. because their child is really I'm kind of pulling away from them and you know where maybe before they were this kind of warm affectionate child who told them everything now they're you know they're not and they don't and they you know they don't share information and they're kind of go around the house quite sullen and and so on I think that can be very hard for parents and I suppose what I would say is that this is kind of normal you know and it's about finding ways of keeping the lines of communication open and not taking it personally if your child stops confiding in you and I suppose uh, you know obviously it's important that parents are aware of where their children are and who their children are associating with you know knowledge of the friendship group is really important but you kind of just have to trust um, that they will sort of come back to you um, and that it's actually normal that that this kind of it's not so much a separation or a detachment we talk about an individuation so by that we mean the child is establishing themselves more as an individual as somebody separate from the family unit it's all relating to their identity and we know that the the kind of identity development is a really important part of adolescence and arguably early adulthood as uh, well so so the so, so I suppose what's important for parents is to understand what's going on for their teenager and um, because as you say it can be a really a really difficult time for them so it is about trying to keep the lines of communication open and um, while also kind of respecting their need for kind of you know privacy so what I would say is kind of pick your battles when it comes to your teenager because you might you know, you might not appreciate that they want to dye their hair, I don't know, purple or whatever, you know, but actually it's their way of kind of expressing themselves um, and maybe that's okay, yeah. you know, during the summer or whatever because we know schools don't like that kind <laughs> yeah. of thing, you know, or wearing, you know, makeup or fake tan or whatever. 
you know, because at the end of the day, they're not the things that actually really matter. Yeah. Sure, they're not. No. You know, I mean, what matters is that they have interests, they have friends, um, you know, and that they they keep well in themselves kind of mentally. And I suppose going back to what we were talking about, about emotions and, you know, being able to talk about emotions and then being able to understand emotions. And I know the schools, you know, do work around, you know, an SPHE and so on around, you know, understanding the adolescent transition. And there's a huge amount of work needs to be done around also around mental health literacy and, you know, uh, children and parents understanding what constitutes normal everyday stress and then what represents something that's maybe more a sign of a, of a mental health, an emerging mental health problem. Because we know that a lot of mental health difficulties do have their first emergence during the adolescent period. So it is a period of particular kind of vulnerability. So we want to keep an eye on our teenagers and kind of make sure that we that, that, that they're keeping well. So it's like it's actually important for parents to be educated on that kind of thing, to know what to expect in the same way as you you know you want to know what to expect when you're expecting you know yeah, uh, I think that's actually so true like well obviously neither of us have kids of that age no yet, but, but you I do, want to you, keep on yeah, top of it as, as Fiona's yeah. growing up to know what's normal and what yeah I mean obviously you can't expect everything there's going to be you know little blips Ups here and, and there yeah um but to know what's coming like I didn't know that about that puberty was be, would begin that early and um, when I'm thinking back myself and it's like oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. it, it does <laughs> um so yeah I think it, it is important for us to keep up with this kind of thing and know um and and it definitely not to keep it take it personally but I'm yeah, just like thinking ahead now and it's going to be very tough it's painful yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, like like I said, parenting is emotion. It's an emotional journey for the kind of parents as well, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So also looking after yourself in it, because I think the teenage years can be, you know, there can be a lot of conflict in the home and a lot of the pleasurable aspects of parenting can sometimes kind of dissipate. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it can, but then not for all children you know and people go through it at different rates and at different times as well and then there's a lot of stress associated with the school system and the kind of you know doing the leave insert is 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 huge you know and but I suppose it's about trying to keep that stress in perspective as well and trying to look I know it's important but actually it's not the most important thing in the world either you know I feel like though we need they're, they're just at every level at every age there needs to be a massive overhaul at a government level mm-hmm for like early childhood education, mm-hmm. early childcare, moving into prime, you know, like, like just even, think, also even thinking about the attachment and how the attachment is usually with the mother. That's because normally the mother is the one at home with them yeah. for six months or a year. Because you can't get a crash place and you can't, you yeah. know, like there's, there's and the all dad these is going things. back to work because yeah. he's only got two month, two weeks paternity leave. Yeah, you like know? if you actually made parental leave easier equal. or equal yeah, yeah. you would definitely I suppose see a shift in yeah. responsibility it all comes down to money doesn't it yeah. at the end of the day and yeah. resources yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. It. um but Liz if people want to find out more about the growing up in Ireland study and, and are, actually are you going to publish the the findings at a certain time or when when will that kind of conclude yeah so I mean the findings are constantly being published all of the time so you can go onto our website growingup.ie and you'll find a whole uh, list of resources there. So we do a kind of nice one page infographics as well, detailing some of the findings coming out from the different waves of the study. So there's definitely a good resource there. And then there are more substantive reports have been published.
published, uh, you know, if people want to get into the more more of the meat, I suppose, of, of some of the findings. But there are key findings, documents that are quite easily kind of ex- accessible for people as well if they're interested in learning more about the study. It's so interesting. So I think, interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely, I don't know if I have the meatier ones in me today, but I'll definitely be checking out a few infographics. Um, but thank you again for coming and joining thank us thank and, you. and discussing. It's been so interesting. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of A Little Birdie Told Me. If you enjoyed it, we have so many other amazing episodes for you to go back and listen to wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure to like us and hit subscribe. Don't forget to tune in again next time. Is your child restless this winter? If so, then try using a soothing Calpol vapor plug and nightlight, an electrical plug-in device that emits lavender and chamomile vapors to soothe and comfort babies and children, helping to promote clear and easy breathing for up to eight hours. The nightlight emits a soft light to help comfort your child and guide you in the room so that you don't disturb your sleeping child. The Calpol night vapor plug and nightlight is suitable for children from three months. Calpol Vapor Plug and Nightlight is an electrical device and non-medicine. Always read the label.